0: You're listening to The McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management.
1: Hi, I'm Kate Murphy, a senior editor in McKinsey's New York office. I'm speaking today with McKinsey director Scott Nyquist. Scott is based in Houston, where he's a leader in McKinsey's energy practice and also our sustainability practice, and a regular columnist on LinkedIn. Let's start with oil. Last year, oil prices dropped by almost half, and that took everyone by surprise. Why are predictions on oil prices often so wrong?
0: I think first I'd like to say that while the industry was surprised at the specific timing and the magnitude of the price collapse, most executives were not entirely shocked by the fact that prices did go down. And what I mean by that is, if you've been in this industry 20-30 years you've been through many cycles many price shocks and you've embedded it in your planning and your leadership to be prepared for you know shifts in the industry like this and it's quite amazing how quickly senior executives have responded in terms of their planning and capital programs in order to uh, uh, respond to the uh, uh, rapidly changing price. Now as to why oil prices are difficult to predict it's a fascinating industry in the sense there's two big uh, groups of players that are, are operating. There is one side which is incredibly competitive, uh, dozens, 100 uh, different players all competing aggressively in the, in the markets in order to find the oil at the cheapest price and compete in the marketplace. And then there's about a third of the industry which operates as a, a cartel in, named OPEC we had a period of four or five years where OPEC was in control of prices and we had a relative price stability. But the problem with these high prices is that it encourages the other part of the industry to compete very aggressively and to invest capital in that high price environment. And then when they begin successful adding new supply to meet the market requirements, it whittles away at the ability of the oligopoly to to survive. Last November, OPEC decided that it was time to respond and they let prices collapse because the competitors had come in and so aggressively found new sources of oil. And given this dynamic of incredible competition on one side and an oligopoly trying to work on the other side, it makes it very difficult to to figure out exactly when they're going to have these big price movements.
1: But the way you describe that dynamic with the oligopoly and then the competitive industry, as long as that duopoly exists does that mean we're always going to be seeing oil price swings
0: throughout my entire career we've seen uh, periods of time where there's been some stability and the industry begins to think well it's different this time and then reality zooms back in and we have another either price flare-up or price collapse so i think this is just part of the industry and and what we tell our clients is that need to be ready for a geopolitical event that could cause prices to fly up or a collapse of the oligopoly, which could cause prices to come crashing down.
1: Is the world running out of oil?
0: In a word, no. There's vast resources available in, in, in place around the world. One analysis that I've seen suggested that there may be 9 trillion barrels of oil that is in place around the world. And since the beginning of, of time, we produced 1 trillion barrels. And we maybe have another one, two trillion barrels that in today's economics we can produce. And the rest we could produce if oil prices go up. And what that means in practical terms is that for the foreseeable future, we'll have unlimited supplies of oil to meet our needs. It's all a question of price.
1: A decade ago, shale gas was not even on the radar, and now it's a significant factor in the American energy supply. But really, it seems like no one saw it coming. So what happened?
0: There are two parts of the story. There's one part that says everybody knew or many people knew that shale gas was there and that at some point in time would get produced. And the other part was just once the economics came in, how rapidly the economics improved and the prices came collapsing down so on the first part of the story is the research into this area has been going on for decades in fact when i was a university student i was doing research in the in the 1980s on how to get shale gas to produce and shale oil to produce now i didn't know at the time that it was going to take you know 35 years for the research to bear fruit but we did think back then that this was a vast resource available but what's so interesting is how quickly, once the industry was able to figure out how to produce this stuff, how quickly the improvements came in and how rapidly the prices came down. I think that was a surprise. People started scaling this thing up in the early 2000-2005 frame, and it was kind of slowly gaining traction, and then quite suddenly, the innovations all came together and prices and economics improved so rapidly and the new supplies of gas came on that the prices went from above ten dollars billion BTU to below three.
1: Is the emergence of shale the biggest energy related innovation you've seen in
0: your career? I don't think about it as a single innovation. I think about it as dozens or even hundreds of incremental innovations that have been going on for decades in the industry that came together to make shale work you know for example uh... there is a series of drilling technologies that have been being developed you know for decades we used to drill wells vertically straight up and down into the oil fields that over time we began to learn that if we could shift the drill bit to actually drill horizontally we could produce more oil and that innovation had been happening in traditional oil fields for for really decades similarly we've also learned in traditional oil fields that if we fractured the the formation we could produce more oil and gas and we've been experimenting with different approaches to fracturing oil fields for for many decades and what happened in the 2000s time frame is you combine these two evolving technologies horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing and start experimenting with them together and was combining all the innovations that were associated with both these technology themes that enabled uh, the economics of shale gas and shale oil to improve so radically.
1: Some people think the same could be said of solar in the near
0: future. Would you agree with that? The similarities is that solar innovation has been happening again for decades. Uh, incremental innovations uh, across the entire value chain for solar not only the pure technology side but also supply chain have been happening for 30-40 years and what's happened recently which is why it seems like it's happening so suddenly is you hit a tipping point on economics where solar economics now with limited and in some cases no subsidies makes economic sense against other forms of power generation and when you hit that tipping point then all of a sudden you can install more solar panels and that increases the volume which reduces the cost even more and you have more uh volumes available into the marketplace at ever lower cost which opens up ever more markets and you get this reinforcing cycle of continually lowering costs which increases the market size solar is just at that tipping point now where we can see a significant growth in demand as the costs keep going down.
1: Does that mean that you see solar as the most promising of the renewable technologies?
0: Yes, I think right now when we think of the renewable technologies, the, the ones that are are most, uh, the one that is most attractive in the near term in terms of the, the overall economics and its likely growth is solar. It's It's continually improving its overall economics, it's getting better every year, And the markets are opening up, and it's very exciting just how rapidly uh, solar has potential to grow around the world. That said, uh, solar on its own uh, may not be enough to meet the aspirations for those who are deeply concerned about greenhouse gas emissions. So if we are able to come up with regulations that radically shifted the emphasis of our society on reducing greenhouse gas emissions... I think other technologies might come in even more rapidly. Uh, In my view, if we're able to really get the right regulations in place, if people were deeply worried about greenhouse gas emissions rather than talking about it, uh, we would encourage uh, nuclear to come in in a much bigger way because that is the technology that has the ability to most quickly scale up and do the most to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the future.
1: I guess one of the advantages of, of nuclear Um, and obviously of fossil fuel technologies is that you can more or less flip the switch on and off, where you can't do that with solar or renewable. Do you see that there's going to be a time coming where uh, solar and other renewables could could deal with these issues of intermittency and reliability?
0: I think the vision for the future on renewables would be if you were able to combine solar and wind and battery-related storage technologies you could come up with a way that you could have the same reliability as a uh, baseload coal or nuclear plant. Today, the economics of natural gas and coal and even nuclear are so attractive relative to solar, wind, and batteries, it's going to be some time before those tromperate of new technologies are able to displace the uh, baseload technology that we see today
1: right so storage is not impossible but not right now is that what you're saying
0: yes the the economics of storage are such that it's easier to use uh, natural gas as a swing supply today uh, rather than putting in expensive uh, storage devices the storage technologies is the the holy grail for solving our problems of the grid if we can have a breakthrough in the technology and overall economics of storage that will rapidly accelerate the development of renewables.
1: Climate change is another subject that is getting a lot of attention and that is a source of serious concern. How do your colleagues in the energy industry see this issue?
0: Well this has been a debate in our industry you know, for my entire career and many energy executives across the power and oil and gas industries you know, have been participating in this debate and energy executives are thinking very hard about you know what the impact of uh, greenhouse gas emissions has on society and the industry and the industry does not agree there are many different points of view let me start with oil and gas executives and give you a sense for what uh, they are thinking and I would say there are, are three groups of executives you know, broadly defined there's one group that believes that climate change is happening that fossil fuels, particularly oil and gas and coal, are primary causes of greenhouse gas emissions increasing and climate change happening. And they believe that government should take action. And many in this group are now advocating uh, a carbon tax uh, as a way to put in place the right regulation to drive the economics of the industry toward reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Now, inside that group, there is a slightly cynical group that says it's a nice coincidence that a carbon tax would help our business in oil and gas versus that of coal, which makes it easy for them to advocate a carbon tax. And, of course, if you happen to be a coal executive, you have a very different point of view on that. But in that group, there is what I call an ideological group that understands a point of view about the science and the need for action now there's a second group and I'll give you the kind of the other end of it that is very skeptical about all this they say there is not sufficient evidence to suggest that the climate change that we're seeing is statistically different than what we're seeing in the past million years it's very difficult to be clear on the real impact of Uh, greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels as a driver of climate change. There's just too much uncertainty and very skeptical about the role that government can play to make a difference in any case, given the track record of government in general. And then there's a third group, which is an interesting one in the sense of they do believe that there's a high probability that climate change is happening due to greenhouse gas emissions. And they do believe that fossil fuels is most likely making a substantial contribution to the climate change. And they do believe that there is a a need for some cautionary action now in in the case that the world evolves in a certain way that greenhouse gas emissions make more of a difference than what people are thinking, And and they believe that action should be taken. However, they see that There's enormous uncertainty about how all these trends can play out. They are optimistic that there will be new technologies that will come over the decades ahead that could provide solutions to climate change that will be much more attractive than the solutions available today and are nervous about society acting too quickly. And this group is very nervous about what could happen with aggressive government intervention on the cost of power, which could have a very negative impact for low income and energy poverty around the world. There are billions of people who are trying to get out of poverty, and if governments intervene to increase the cost of energy, it could significantly dampen their prospects to come out of poverty. So this group is looking at the science, sees enormous uncertainty across many dimensions, and sees the need to act but would like to be very cautious. Does the market have a role in dealing with climate change? I think most oil and gas executives are are strong believers that the market can play a role. And those that believe that action needs to be taken to reduce greenhouse gas emissions would encourage government to put in place carbon prices that would stimulate the market to make the changes necessary as opposed to having the government take direct control of the operations of, of parts of the industry. So even those that are advocating aggressive action to improve greenhouse gas emissions would encourage a market-oriented approach to drive the change. And then those on the other side are nervous about government action because they think markets can do a lot on their own. And, and the need for government to come in to make Bold direct interventions into the marketplace are fraught with danger and aren't warranted. And they would cite the example of the U.S., where when Obama came into office, he had very grand plans to move toward clean technology, you know, solar, wind, in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And ironically, he presided, has presided over. One of the greatest reductions in greenhouse gas emissions that we've ever seen anywhere in the world. But it had nothing to do with solar and wind. Instead, it happened as a result of shale gas coming in and displacing coal. And that had led to a substantial reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. The
1: electric car is also getting a lot of attention, particularly considering there are relatively few on the road. In the near term, say 10 years, how concerned is the oil industry about them? Are energy executives losing sleep?
0: If you look at a a 10-year time frame, it's unlikely that electric vehicles will make a material difference in the overall demand for oil. So I don't think energy executives lose sleep over electric vehicles when you take a 10-year time frame. If you just think about the realities of the transportation sector, if you build a car today, it'll last 12 years or longer. And if you look at all the cars that are being built today, most of them are being fueled by oil, and therefore they'll be on the road for the next decade or more. And if you think about it in a statistical sense, you know, electric vehicles don't even show up on the radar scope. So if you look at over the next decade, you know, there's not going to be a material impact of electric vehicles on overall oil demand. However, if you go longer term, I think the industry is nervous about it. If you go out 20 years, 30 years, it's very possible that you could have a scenario where electric vehicles take on a much larger share of the transportation sector and make a material difference on future oil demand. And there's been some discussion that one of the reasons why OPEC was so willing and eager to reduce oil prices is it wanted to preserve long-term markets And one of the benefits to the oil industry of lower oil prices is that it makes oil much more competitive compared to electric vehicles in the transportation sector and will delay the time at which electric vehicles will gain a significant share of the industry.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Scott, for taking the time to be with us.
0: Appreciate it very much. Thank you.
1: And don't forget that you can follow Scott Nyquist on LinkedIn to read his regular perspectives on energy and the environment.
0: You've been listening to the McKinsey podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.